How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora we all come from somewhere else. Find out more and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now, The Plastic Podcasts was never intended to be a hotbed of academic debate. However, one way or the other, we're on our eighth episode, and we're already on to our third doctor. Following on from John O'Donoghue, Craig Jordan Baker, we now have Dr. Jess Moriarty, a course leader for creative writing at the University of Brighton, and a third-generation member of the diaspora, being the daughter of Paul Moriarty, also of this parish. Jess specialises in stories, and in particular, community stories. But the first thing I wanted to know was, can you actually learn how to write from a course? I think creative writing can be supportive, encouraged, inspired. I think you can learn about different approaches, different techniques, and then kind of think about your own, um, uh, uh, kind of what your sense of good storytelling is, and use all of that to inform and enhance and develop that. Uh, but yeah, of course, being a great storyteller is reliant on so many other things, as well as a, a, a kind of class or a university experience, you know. So, and we're not a conveyor belt. You don't just come in and we promise that you will, uh, you, you will kind of leave all with the same skills and the same experience and the same way of telling stories, because that would mean our courses were failing. Um, so, so you know, a lot, a lot of my work has has, has kind of been built around the fact that autobiographical experiences and 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 the things that we engage with when we're children and um our life experiences and and all of those other things go into the cauldron that 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 have a massive effect on the kind of writers that we end up being um but certainly i think that that, you know at the university we provide a supportive environment uh with really passionate tutors who are all writing themselves so have a kind of empathy with 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 how amazing but also how difficult writing can be um, and to give students kind of, you know, the, the, the time to, to share their work and their ideas and think about what might kind of uh, develop their writing and also hear from professional writers. So this year, Bernadine Everisto is coming in to talk to them. Uh, we've had Moshin Hamid come in. We've had Ali uh, Smith. We've had Karen Joy Fowler. We've had, um, you know, so we had Dorothy Coonson come in um, last year as well. So, so some really fantastic writers share their experiences with them as well. And I think that combination of all those things can support people, uh, students to become, become stronger, better, uh, more confident writers. Now, you also emphasise the notion of community, don't you? I do, yes. Uh, oh my goodness, you have been stalking me. So, uh, so, so because there's this idea that the, a writer is quite a narcissistic, uh, or lonely person, you know, the idea of the, the writer in their garret, uh, writing reams and reams every day, uh, uh, a kind of the, the Virginia Woolf, a room of my own kind of, uh, uh, notion as well. And of course, there's a lot to be said for that. A lot of writing does involve sitting on your own and, and getting on with it. But, Obviously, and, 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 you know, a, a lot of Irish writers I know would, 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 would agree with this, that, that it's a writer's responsibility to look up and out at the kind of world around them as well. And also to engage with new ideas and new communities and, um, and new histories and kind of concepts and, and research that maybe they haven't even thought of before to enliven their writing and, and create new genres and new ideas in writing as well. So, so yeah, so we really, um, uh, on the MA, for example, students have to do, they have to become artists in residence. So they join an organization or a, a site specific, um, uh, a, a kind of placement, uh, where they draw on that space as a way of, uh, kind of improving and developing their writing. 
none of us come sort of, you know, fully formed out um, and so I go right I'm going to be a um, I'm going to be a creative artist. So you, uh, you you're born as um, with with uh, with Irish grandparents, yes? Yep. Uh, so on my dad's side, I had Irish grandparents, uh, both uh, brilliant storytellers, but not uh, none of neither of them. Um, and on my mum's side as well, they my um, none of my grandparents um, got to go to university, uh, but were really uh, intelligent. Loved to go to the theatre. You know, my my Irish grandparents in particular, they loved to be out they love to be at the theater they love to be at kind of music events they like to be out kind of just out where it was happening my my grandmother's there was a joke that my grandmother's suitcase was always packed because she was always ready to be off and out and uh, and kind of up to new adventures and creating new stories um and then my parents uh you know, I am, I am as, I, you know, I, I consider myself as, as, as lucky as they come because my dad's an actor. My mum was a teacher and a counsellor as well. And, um, she specialised in English literature and drama. Um, and of course, all the time from a very young age, you know, I've got really early memories of being encouraged to go to the theatre. In fact, this is a very good Irish Catholic story. My earliest memory of going to the theatre is watching my dad play God. Uh, so, uh, and actually my, on the stage, my dad got to decide which side of the audience went to heaven and which went to hell. Um, so you can imagine as a, as a seven year old, um, this was quite high stakes. Uh, so, but luckily we were inside of the audience that went to heaven. So, so that was good. I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Uh, yeah, they're living through Brexit now, probably. Um, so, uh, so, so, so we were always going to, to the theatre and encouraged to, to kind of, um, engage with, uh, you know, museums and galleries and, 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 and so we had kind of a, a, a really creative childhood, you know, and, and really encouraged to tell and write and make stories. So make up plays and things, um, like that with our friends. So, so yeah. And what was the, what was the moment when you went, you know, I think I'd like to do this? I think, so a lot of my life, obviously, I was being told, oh, you'll be an actor like your dad, you'll be an actor like your dad. And I did do um, drama at school and at college, and I did used to really enjoy it. But I think as with any craft, you know, if you're doing something that you that, that, that you that you really love, well, I was quite half-hearted with drama. Like, I could do it, and I did enjoy it, but I never really seemed to get too nervous and and I just thought somebody that really gets that adrenaline kick and is in love with this should be doing it you know it's, it's an honor and a, it's a it's an honor and a privilege to to to, to be an actor and, and 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 so I decided that was that was for, for for those people um whereas you know I still get an adrenaline kick from teaching but also from writing and sharing my work and working with other writers doing collaborations you know that for me is kind of um what what takes my breath away and pushes me and challenges me and surprises me and and where I feel I kind of develop myself you know where I find out most about myself but also get to hear from kind of new um new artists as well which is always kind of reviving and refreshing what I write too so what was the first thing that you wrote as a professional writer uh, as a professional writer, God, because I thought when I was, so when I was about 13 years old, I wrote a musical that was about the start of World War One, and I did it to the music of Joseph and Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
So there is a copy of one of my friends has still got that uh, that musical uh, available somewhere. So she's used it to blackmail me for many years. Um, uh, so so I used to do things like that all the time, like makeup plays and makeup, um, and it just used to you know used to make my friends happy. Uh, so 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 that's what that was like what I used to do, and um, and then I went to. Uh, Norwich University and um, I wanted to be a journalist so I did work experience at, at, for different radio stations and um, for different newspapers and then realised that actually journalism uh, can be quite uh, uh, cutthroat I would say so that that didn't feel like that's what it was that that was right for me um, so then I actually uh, worked at a cinema for a long time and realised you know which I hated but I loved watching films um and I decided to do um the MA in creative writing at Sussex and sort of since then I've been I've not stopped writing since then really which takes us around to the the first thing that you wrote professionally so the first thing that I I guess the first thing that I wrote professionally I was I was always writing kind of um kind of poems and uh little plays and stuff like that but the first thing that I actually got published was probably an academic article uh, which I say it's really bad that I screw my face up when I say that isn't it so I'd written bits that didn't get through so I wrote I'd written kind of tv scripts and short scripts and um things that didn't that kind of that I submitted that didn't get published and stuff um but often got good feedback and things like that and then when I joined academia I was writing um, journal articles um, that usually that, that that kind of from very early on included poetry and autobiographical writing as well, um, and that's kind of you know since then uh, that's you know that's part of being a, 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 a an academic you just you have to you have to write, um, and for me right at first I thought this academic writing is not for me it's not in the kind of style I want to do I don't find it interesting when I read it myself, um, but but. But I actually think academic writing is evolving in a really interesting um, way. You know, there's all sorts of different genres and styles of academic writing. There's much more permission to include creative, you know, in the past, creative writing was sort of seen as the um, as the poor relation to academic, which is crazy because obviously creative writing, I mean, all writing is creative, but kind of fiction, poetry, script um, has a much wider readership and much wider access. It is much more diverse and democratic and inclusive than academic writing. So that is that weird snobbery from academia, why why it's not as kind of important as academic writing. But but more and more now, those boundaries are very positively um, blurring. So, so, you know, all of my um, academic work has uh, has kind of personal and or um, poetry scripts, uh, prose writing in it. So let's move on to the, the personal then and influences. I mean, what inspires you? Um, well, one of the things that does really inspire me is working with other people. So um, I had a book published last year, which was meant to be um, written by me. Well, it was written by me. That sounds that sounds terrible then, doesn't it? But actually, so so all of the chapters, I said that I was going to interview another artist. And every single interview I did, the person I interviewed then said, oh, I'd quite like to do a bit of writing for this as well. So in the end, nearly every chapter ended up being co-written. Um, because so the process was that we would walk and talk about creativity and then we would and then I was going to write about it. But then the person often said, oh, I'd like to take some photos or I'd like to do a bit of writing as well. Um, so um, and some of those. So we, I had um, an artist. I had a poet. 
Um, I had a, a, a teacher. I had um, a, a, a whole range of people from different backgrounds. Somebody that works in inclusive arts, um, a fine artist. Um, so, uh, so all people from kind of different backgrounds who who wanted to, to to kind of be part of that. And actually, at first, I was a bit like, oh God, this is kind of being taken over by these these people. Um, and then realized actually it's much better for it. The the dialogue between myself and the other artists was was kind of what 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 kept me passionate and motivated about the book and hopefully is what makes it interesting as well what we have there is is kind of like the stories being shared yes absolutely which yeah. kind of brings us to it's a, it's a really like you're, we talk about stories and storytelling and obviously this is a, a podcast about the diaspora and oh. storytelling comes quite high on the list of things that people describe the irish as being like known for yeah um, and I think that it, you know, when some, some of my earliest memories of being with my, um, grandparents is sitting in my nan's, um, living room in Wembley on her green sofa with various aunts and uncles around, um, telling stories, you know, singing songs or being taken up to Kilburn to go and, um, uh, visit my auntie Doreen or auntie Kathleen, um, in their flat and talking about the past and talking about, kind of this person from the family or that person from the family. Um, and I used to absolutely love it. I was kind of um, spellbound um, by, 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 by those kind of instances, if you like, as well. Um, and that's coupled with, uh, you know, my dad is a, a brilliant storyteller and really interested in new stories and um, kind of hearing from and reading stories, but also seeing stories at the theatre and in the cinema as well. And my and my mum very much too. So 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 you know I think stories are at, at the very heart of what it is to be human. It's how we make connections. It's how we understand history. It's how we understand the world around us. It's how we understand and relate to each other, and and also how we understand ourselves as well. So so yeah, I suppose it's it's the kind of heartbeat of everything we do. Do you think that it's a skill that we lose? I think we can. Um, definitely, I you know, and this is why I think storytelling is so tied up with our well-being as well. I know that we're not because obviously working at the university, I've got three children. Uh, life gets in the way as well. So I know when I'm not writing stories, um, it's sort of anaesthetizes me. I feel that I become less sensitive to the world and sometimes maybe that's a survival strategy at the moment who knows um but yeah I find that it's only when I'm writing and kind of putting down what I think and what I've heard um that 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 I'm kind of most sensitive to to what's going on I mean sensitive in the in a positive way not in a kind of you know um overly emotional way um but it's it kind of means I feel like I'm kind of tuned out of of what's really happening in the world and also with me if I'm not writing um and yeah you know that 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 storytelling when I was young with with my grandparents and with these kind of um magical uh aunts as well um uh, uh, that's again when I felt kind of alive when I felt kind of sensitive to, to to the world and the people in it You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, We All Come From Somewhere Else. As an academic, Jess Moriarty has championed the importance of community and autobiography in literature. I wanted to know a little more about her own biography, starting with her childhood. Um, see, I'm 
I'm I I know I'm really lucky. So so in my um memories of childhood, it always feels like it's light and summery. Now of course that's not true. Growing up in Edgware wasn't summer all the time. Um and then it, growing up in Brighton as well, you know, it's, it's uh there there must have been rain and wind. Uh but my childhood memories are always um pretty uh sunny, you know, uh I'd feel like I come from a family who uh are really kind of connected that uh that that for whatever kind of uh differences or tensions always did want to kind of work through them and stay connected to each other um that did kind of going out and socializing a lot together and sharing experiences of going abroad of uh trying out new cultures and things as well um and having having a lot of laughs and a lot of fun um but also uh you know very political as well so 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 you know so all of my grandparents um and my my parents as well would 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 kind of um socialist in their own way <laughs> uh especially my my mother and my father um so yeah so 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 my memories are of a, a kind of culturally rich um happy childhood uh, uh, uh with lots of kind of interesting characters and and lively experiences and you say there was a lot of storytelling from your 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 aunts and and grandparents and so forth i think very early on as well it felt like a privilege to be listening in on those stories and i know i didn't get all the stories i know that you know my nans and my aunts had their stories that they that they that they didn't share or couldn't share for whatever reason um but it generally felt like you know to be sat in an armchair listening in um, to these stories being told it felt like a, a real gift it felt like a, I was really lucky to be in on it I felt you know I felt like I, fe- I, I felt lucky and grown up to be hearing all those hearing these kind of snippets of, of stories from the past does that, that does a sense of being Irish inform your work see this is this I mean this is really interesting because I think definitely you know I talk about my um my my nan in my work a lot and 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 with it linked and I talk about my sense of identity and where I feel that comes from including you know autobiographical memories autobiographical experiences and the um characters that inspired and uh were kind of like my touchstones I suppose that's why you know when you're when you're trying to make sense of yourself as a child and as a teenager as an adult as a 42 year old woman you know you often do look back to the past and the people in it as a kind of touchstone for for a sense of where you're at and 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 why you are the way you are um so uh so i think in terms of that my connection with my irish heritage does inform everything i do it's like you know how could it not your mum was 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 english yes my mum's english her father her father was welsh um but he kind of he didn't have a very uh, happy childhood so sort of um denied his welsh heritage we never went to wales or anything like that so so yeah but my you know my 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 Irish grandparents were um, kind of always talking about Ireland and 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 how amazing it was and how much they um, loved it and about their journey from Ireland to this country and and what that had been like and how it felt to be um, kind of an outsider and out and unwanted and and what they'd done in order to to make um, this country their home. And do you feel that you share some of that sense of I don't know estrangement being an outsider estrangement to this country or to ireland oh either <laughs> um 
see, you know, this is where I have to be careful because I don't want to romanticise too much my connection with Ireland. But definitely I did feel a very deep connection to my um, Irish grandmother. I wanted to be like her. Um, I was going to say I looked up to her, but she was only four foot eleven. Um, so I don't remember looking up to her for too long. And she wore these, but she did wear these massive heels all the time. Uh, and she, she used to work, um, in all the big department stores like Dickens and Jones and Selfridges and Harrods. So she would always be very well dressed. Um, and she, you know, that was something really important to her. She never had a naked nail or toenail. And that is definitely something that I have uh, inherited uh, from her. You know, that's kind of my homage to her, I suppose, as well, to have these. Uh, it wasn't it's not green on purpose today for the for the Irish interview. Um, we thank you for the subconscious tribute anyway. You're welcome. Um, so, yeah. So so, so I, I, I really did feel, you know, when I when I grew up, I wanted to, to be like her. She lived this very glamorous life. You know, even though she lived on a kind of housing estate in, in Wembley, she was always out. She was always uh, partying after work with this, you know, this range of women from different backgrounds. They were always going off on holiday together. Um, they were always, you know, living this kind of this, they, you know, they were the sort of the original sex in the city gang, if you like. <laughs> um, and yeah, just just wanted to be one of these strong, uh, funny um, women. I'm saying that today and I realise I am in my PE kit uh so the uh so maybe that doesn't quite come across this morning but yeah she was she was a massive inspiration and and then uh the English side was that was was there still a sense of belonging there as well I mean just I suppose by virtue of being in England yeah absolutely I don't feel I don't feel I mean I don't feel like I am I you know I am a I'm a white uh middle class uh heterosexual woman i am you know i am not i don't feel marginalized i'm very, i'm in a very privileged um position i'm i'm very aware of that uh so yeah so i don't feel outside um kind of uh my english culture but i definitely have always felt this very strong golden thread connecting me to my irish heritage and that's much more family i suppose than it is place it is family not place yeah i mean i have obviously i've been to ireland um i love ireland um, I've taken my children to Ireland. My, my children actually have got my surname, not my husband's surname because, um, and, uh, because I feel, you know, I feel, felt so strongly and he did as well, you know, felt so strongly about, um, them having, um, the Irish surname. So, uh, so, so, you know, I definitely do have a, a, a kind of a golden, uh, thread linking me to, to Ireland. And, and what was the sense of that? Uh, I don't, I just, I mean, what was the sense of that? So, um, we weren't, we actually weren't married at the time anyway. And we'd, we'd kind of made the decision not to get married. Although weirdly we are married now. Um, and, uh, just from, it was a feminist thing, but also I do have a very strong sense of my name. Um, and, uh, it wasn't an argument. It wasn't, there wasn't any tension. I just said, I'd really like the children to have my surname and, and he was fine with it. So, you know. That was it. Was good. They are Moriarty's as well. He often says it himself. So have they ever listened to the goons? They have not listened to the goons. Actually, weirdly, their Welsh grandfather, great grandfather, would have wanted them to do that. So, but their time will come. They're still small. They've got lots to look forward to. How old are they? Um. So my youngest is nine. My middle child is um eleven, and then I have a stepson who's twenty. The Moriarty's themselves. When I was talking to your father, he was saying that it's like the vast 
vast majority of Moriarty's in Ireland are, are basically sort of like around one particular. Is, is it Tralee? Yep. So, uh, so actually, I went back to um, my husband, my now husband. And I went back to Ireland when we first got together. He took me on um, a holiday to Ireland. We went to Castlevine and Tralee and to Dingle. Um, and in Dingle in particular, there are loads of Moriarty's, like on shop fronts, on restaurants, on bars. You know, the Moriarty name is everywhere. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're all from that neck of the woods. We'll be back with Jess Moriarty shortly. However, we're now at that point where I ask one of my guests to hoist upon the plastic pedestal a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance to them. This week, Craig Jordan Baker talks about the writer Moy McCrory. Yeah, I would I would probably name uh, Moy McCrory. Um, uh, Moy is a, a wonderful writer, um, feminist and um, cultural activist who is um, someone I've learned uh, a lot from uh, over the past um several years um I, I met her at a creative writing conference um in london some years ago and we've um partly due to having um mutual irish connections and just i think um finding each other rather funny um we've got on really well and um and, but she's someone that is working in the 80s at the irish women's center um she's um uh, she's a prolific um short story writer and um and writer as, uh, also about um uh uh, uh um you know, Irish traditions of mourning, for example. She's really interested in um, in Keening, and uh, and she's written a wonderful. She wrote a wonderful uh, essay, I, I think, in um, in I wouldn't start from here. Um, a, a, um, a collection of works um, about the Irish diaspora, um, about uh, about sort of Keening and mourning, I believe. Um, so uh, yes, she's so that's my nomination, Moy McCrory. Craig Jordan Baker there, and if you want to hear more about what Craig has to say. Why not check out our interview with him at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now back to Jess Moriarty. As a third generation member of the diaspora, Jess can claim an Irish passport. I wanted to know how she felt about this and both Brexit and its sister in crisis, Covid. Um, so it's interesting that you it's interesting that you bring this up because I've applied for my um, Irish passport, um, and that was that was a response to to Brexit. I suppose it, and it was politically in that I I was so angry about Brexit, I was so upset about Brexit, um, and then also we started talking about um, moving moving to Ireland actually. Um, so and obviously well, the only way to do that would be if if I had my citizenship on my passport as well. So and we were hoping we'd be able to get it for the for the children too. Which I can't, but um, but still. So so yes, yeah, so I think you know Brexit was such. Uh, it was it well and still is you know such a disruption. You know you're talking about the, the the disruption to Ireland and how actually this is moving away from from unity rather than than unifying. And the same in this country as well. I think it has been so divisive. You know divisive the 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 kind of the tremors that it sent um, through the country, even you know between friends, between family members as well. Um, and I suppose I had this crazy notion that getting an Irish passport and with a view to moving to Ireland would kind of resolve that. And of course, you can't run from Brexit. Um, it is, it, you know, the, 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 the tremors in, in Ireland and the potential damage it can do in Ireland are as, 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 as kind of tangible as they are here. Um, so yeah, so I don't, we've moved away from the idea of moving to Ireland that everything will be kind of green and 
glowing and happy in 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 a post-Brexit island because, as you say, it it doesn't look like that that those pieces are going to work together or, or fit either. Um, but certainly in terms of here, I just feel so much despair about it. I just still have this idea of running away from it all. Is this a country then that you recognise? Um, well, it is a country that I recognise because I've lived in it all my life. So it's a, it's a country that I recognise. But I think some of the things that I worried about this country that were kind of um, hidden or there was kind of a facade that was that, that was up, particularly living in Brighton. You know, living in Brighton is a bit like living in a glorious uh, rainbow coloured bubble. Um, and it felt like the bubble had been kind of popped or at least kind of uh, uh, shrunk. Um, after Brexit, because, you know, you talk to, to, to friends and people in Brighton, you kind of had this sense that maybe Brexit was this thing that this impossible thing, a bit like Trump winning an election in America, for example. And then and then the results come through and you realize that, that actually you're in the mind. We're well, not in the minority, uh, not in the minority. Um, but but you realize that actually, you know, opportunities like Brexit are an excuse to pull down the facade and for people to say and do what they what they really think which is which is often driven um by this kind of warped nationalistic and racist notions which is where i want to come back to this notion of home i suppose um Mm -hmm. because um uh, the, the um the the campaign for brexit was predicated on a notion of sort of like taking back control on this is the, and, and 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 britain is 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 a home for the british and not for europe and and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing and, and and so forth you'd think therefore then that that people would feel more secure as a result but it strikes me that it's the opposite's true um oh yeah i think completely for a lot of people the opposite is true um you know i've got a one of my friends who is Irish living in in this country and she had comments like oh yeah but you're not like them when people when she had friends voting for Brexit and she said do you realize what you're doing you know do you realize how that might affect or um, offend somebody like me to actually have oh yeah but you're not like you're not like you know that something that, which is kind of the, the the precursor to to most racist statements is <laughs> just kind of you know it made people that have lived here, contributed here, uh, been a, a, a really valuable part of the fabric here, feel unwanted. Um, it is, it is, it is very, um, undermining and, uh, and does kind of disrupt any kind of, uh, sense of connection or motivation or, or passion to be here or at least to feel welcome here, I suppose. So your visitors, your guests in a country that, that actually is yours. Have you seen that reflected in the, the the work that people on your course have done? I have actually, um, and I've just so I'm editing a, a a book at the moment on um storying, which is called Storying the Self. So it's about how we story autobiographical experiences. Um, and a former student has written um a, a chapter where she talks about the effects of Brexit on um her identity um and and. And, and kind of, you know, this, this undercurrent of racism, which has now become, uh, not so much an undercurrent and, and, and recognizable in her family and, and friends and things as well. And, and how that's made her feel kind of outside this country again or, or, or a desire to be outside. And that definitely seems to be a, a theme in, in lots of students' works at all sorts of levels. Do you think that's been changed at all or will have been changed at all by COVID? 
<sighs> that is a very good question because I think COVID has kind of um, I think it's it's interesting that that, that Brexit has, is starting to, to to gather momentum in the media again at the moment for for obvious reasons. But I think COVID kind of dominated everything um, for so long, understandably, because you know it hit people in 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 kind of in personal ways, in health ways, in politically. Uh, uh, vocationally, you know, every kind of, of uh, aspect of, of of their lives, it kind of hit them. So, um, so I think Brexit was shelved, uh, and we can talk politically and ideologically uh, about that and who's running the media and stuff. But um, I'm sure that's all been said before. Um, yeah, so I think that has made a difference. The thing is, is though that um, we've had. Uh, the notion of home kind of like uh, narrowed down to a certain extent by, by by COVID because because people have been forced to like stay wherever they are uh, for quite some time and so their their, cons- their consideration of what home is it's like yeah uh, if it's a place um, if it's family if it's if it's friends if it's a if it's a sense of sense of wellness or a sense of being or or, or whatever it is is kind of being magnified and I think that's that, that is potentially you know, because uh, one of the so so there aren't huge positives about COVID because, of course, thousands and thousands of people um, have died and millions of people have been affected by it. So I'm not going to I'm not going to kind of um, downplay or undermine any of that. But from my personal experience, actually, I live in a really lovely place. Um, I have uh, fantastic children. I have a very good um, kind of, you know, family uh, relationship. So 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 actually, you know, that time in COVID gave me the opportunity to feel very grateful for my home my home like right in front of my face now but again in the aftermath of brexit um it again that that notion of home and, and what this country is was put under the microscope so 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 you know thinking about the nhs or um how um the government looked after vulnerable people uh how it will affect people for, for what this country will look like what the, the kind of landscape not you know the, the job market the house market people's health and lives and how they looked after and um just people's respect for vulnerable lives as well you know for a long time to come that is not in a i don't see that as being in a positive place on one hand you know the idea of people going out and clapping for the nhs well well that's great but i think um unfortunately there hasn't been a much of a backlash against the government in terms of how they dealt it and how they looked after vulnerable people and so the time in COVID gives you a chance again to put that under the microscope and think about um, your notion of home and, and your, your your sense of pride and, and belonging in the country where you live. And for for me, you know, that was problematic again. And what is your sense of home? I think on an optimistic day, my sense of home is that I live in Brighton um, and uh, and that I have a very lucky, happy, healthy family life. Um that the country that I live in is not at the moment uh, run by the people I would I voted for or or chose to run it, but I still decide to live here. You know, I didn't, I haven't uh, moved, even though we kind of talked about it and fantasised about it during COVID. We are still here with with no immediate plans to leave. So, but that that does as it does for for, for you know millions of people cause attention. And on a on a pessimistic day. Oh God, on a pessimistic day, I hate it all. On a pessimistic day, I don't want to turn on my phone or, um, or, or look at my laptop, uh, because, you know, working in education, 
um, the experience of students, um, I find very, really worrying. I mean, as soon as you introduce fees for students, part of an education, that's already worrying. Throw COVID into the mix as well. Again, potentially, um, that is difficult. And I know all my colleagues in, in higher education and, and at Brighton are working really hard to make sure, um, that students do still have a fantastic experience. But of course, we're, we're all worrying about their safety and their health. And that does change the, the playing fields in, in higher education. Um, and, and yeah, I feel really, really sad for, for the dismantling of the NHS and, and that the Conservative Party have been responsible for that. Uh, uh, have them been out clapping and using that as a publicity opportunity and things too. The reason why I asked that and the reason why we've, we've done both positive and negative there is that it's essentially what's, what's been described as the diaspora experience only now writ large for everyone, I think. It's that sense of having a foot in each country but uh, a home in neither. And this sense of home is very, very fragile. And it's, you know, that, that's been thrown into relief again by, by, by recent events, I think. And I think, you know, because obviously that was my grandparents' experience as well, a kind of a, 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 a foot in both camps. Um, and I do still think that home for them was in the people that they loved and, um, and, and their community as well, whether it was their kind of their neighbors on the, the estate or the, 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 the mad aunts or whatever else as well. And having the opportunity to, to talk through their experiences in Ireland and in this country as well, that, that made them feel sure about themselves and their identity and where they belonged. So the sense of home is, if, if, if it is fragile, then is kind of strengthened by, by, by telling stories. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think, you know, storytelling deepens our connections with other people. It connects us to people. It makes us not feel isolated and alone. It reminds us that, that you know, other people share some of our experiences and also it, it kind of gives us a stronger sense of self. So when we feel lost, when we feel like, where do I belong? Am I happy here? What, what is the point? Of, of of being here, uh, then 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 you know it, it's those conversations that, that 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 can refresh us and remind us. Do you think people are more or less likely to share stories just at the moment? I mean, for one thing, you know, so actually going out in public and sharing a story is you know whether whether it's performance or another hideous thing that the government has encouraged us all to get back to the pub but not to the theatre. Um, I mean, hurrah for for going to the pub, but 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 let's have some support for the arts as well. Um, I think it's both, isn't it? Because obviously, COVID encouraged, inspired um, this massive outpouring of creativity. So people wanting to capture their experiences with COVID, whether it was through short films or poems or stories or images. Um, so 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 you know, people were using that to cap to capture experience with these times and and to to kind of connect with people usually through social media or Zoom meetings and, and things like that. And then for other people, it had a massive effect on their creativity and also on their, their well-being, which, which often means they find it difficult to create and make or even kind of tell people what's going on with them. So, so I think, you know, that, 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 that that's kind of been on a, a, a really kind of split thing as well. What would you say to people who, who's like, who don't feel as though they've got a story to share? Well, it's really simplistic, isn't it? But of course, everyone has a story to, te to share. It's just a case of where to start and um, how to tell it as well. But again, I think that's where um, dialogue can be really useful. So, so, you know, you know, Doug, you are very good at, at kind of uh, disarming um, people that you're trying to get a story out of at the beginning of a of an interview, which is a, a real knack and a real real skill with people trying to don't tell them my secrets. <laughs> trying to motivate people to feel safe and supported to tell their stories, um, and I think that's it's kind of you know with writing with getting students to write. Often it's just getting them to 
to to write and start telling a story, which will then hopefully lead them to the story that they actually want to tell and need to tell too. I mean, I, I, but I'm in a privileged position here, which is that I get the opportunity to talk to to to, to friends and indeed strangers and, and 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 people that I've not met before in this fashion and actually have a conversation with them that is denied to me. Say, for example, from in the in the traditional way that I would normally do, which is in a pub. You know, I can't chat to a stranger at a bar in a pub and hear their story anymore. I can't. You know, it's like I'm I'm now. So yeah, you know, I've got to sit at, at table number eight and sit with my requisite number of people in my personal bubble and never so I have my bubble bounce off of anybody else. And and also, and I think this is a problem um, during COVID as well. Is that of course for a lot of us we stopped having stories because there was that Groundhog Day um, experience of you know what have you been up to? Well. I've been in a Zoom meeting and I've been for my one hour walk and um, I tried to get a shopping slot um, and I I stayed, I tried to stay well, you know, that that was kind of for if we were lucky, um, you know, the story that most of us had during COVID, if we were really lucky, I know that a lot of people had horrendous stories and and, uh, tried to hold, tried to stay alive. Um, But for a lot of the people that I was um, communicating with, you know, our our story did become quite Groundhog Day. And then that stops you wanting to tell a story as well, doesn't it? When you when you feel it's it's quite a two dimensional story. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. In the last part of my interview with Jess Moriarty, we discussed the importance of storytelling in its relation to mental health and to Irish women in particular. We also talk about the possibilities for the next generation of Moriarty women. Um, so I think mental health is, uh, is something we're probably becoming more and more aware of affects all of us, you know, everyone at some point in their life unless you're unless you're really gifted or I don't know you know you will have you will have a you will have a mental health episode at, at some point it's it's more than likely um it's really we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday so listening to stories as as I as I used to get the opportunity to which would um often start with a cup of tea and but and and then end with a with a quite hefty tumbler of whiskey. Not for me, I hasten to point out. Although I used to always look forward to the days when that would happen. Um, and the stories that they would tell, uh, they had found a way to live with these stories. You know, they had found a way to to live with some of these stories um, that meant that they didn't um, have they didn't present with obvious mental health issues. And yet now, looking back with the gift of hindsight, obviously quite a lot of these stories you know you you thought well that, that would have that would have kind of induced some kind of mental health issue and and maybe it was through the kind of the telling and the community um that supported them with that but but obviously then that was you know a culture with the, with a lot of people who you didn't tell certain stories you did keep quiet and and you did just get on with it or make the best of it as my grandmother used to say um and actually, I think probably, um, you know, there's also this thing where we where we do want to hear about um, experiences with mental health. And we do want to hear experiences of people living positively with mental health as well. So, um, so, 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 you know, how do you accept that you will have depressive episodes for the rest of your life? And how do you kind of um, how do you kind of make peace with that, I suppose, too? Um, so, so yeah, so I don't, my sense of it in terms of the Irish diaspora isn't, is, is only based on kind of my interactions with my, um, 
with with uh with my with my aunts and my nan for example and my own kind of uh mental health uh too um so yeah so sorry that's probably not a very well-formed answer for you that's okay it wasn't a well-formed question you know we talked about this a bit because it was in i was just then when i was thinking it because you were we were talking about um books from the diaspora as well and i remember my nan recommending that i read edna o'brien well of course when you read those books although um mental health issues aren't labeled as mental health issues of course there's a lot of mental health going on there it was interesting that she recommended those books to me and i now think that that is that that is interesting what did your grandmother read oh everything she really was uh she and and in terms of the theater as well she would go and see absolutely anything as well you know she she and she loved she loved going and again she loved she loved going to see everything at the cinema as well so she it wasn't that she would only go and see one type of thing she wanted to she gobbled up stories you know she really did um so uh so 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 she she recommended me um Edna O'Brien and she did usually read women um writers but but she would read anything was she gossip and it's uh, yeah um yeah, she 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 really did love stories. She really did, and she loved telling her own story as well, which I've definitely got from her, as you can tell. <laughs> the last couple of questions, one of which is, um, you talk about um, uh, stories that uh, have been told by 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 past generations to you, and you've got three three children, um, uh, two of which are, are, of whom are what, eleven and nine. What stories do you tell them? I'm just getting to the side now. Uh, where I've where they've started doing a bit of the eye rolling stuff, and also they tell their own amazing stories. You know, my my son is a is already a, a brilliant writer, and that's not just with rose tinted um, mum spectacles on. He is a, a really skilled writer, um, and I think one of the things they are both really interested in other human beings. So so you know, as as children start to move into that teenage phase, sometimes it can become quite. Um, narcissistic and self-interested as it needs to be to survive being a teenager in some ways um but they generally are very interested in um other people and you know it's really easy to take them out in as much as you can in covid in in social uh places and for them to talk to people that are older than them or from different cultures as well and and for them to be kind of lively but sensitive and respectful um and i do tell them you know my this is a really interesting thing about um connections and home and identity isn't it because in my daughter my nine-year-old daughter I see my Irish grandmother so much um so so I I I felt that I kind of um was connected to her and was like her but I am very much the kind of more tempered watered down version of my grandmother whereas my daughter has come like the full potency you know my my grandmother and then some um, and she is unapologetic and she is um, very she doesn't mind if she sometimes says things that she knows that she has a powerful effect on people. So she says herself, I know I'm like Marmite. I know some people are going to get me and some people aren't going to get me. And that's OK, which I never have had. You know, I'm 42 and I don't have that. So so, so you know, so seeing that link between her and my grandmother. So I do tell her stories about her great grandmother all the time. Uh in a way to sort of steer her away from being maybe exactly like her great grandmother, but also to encourage her with how she feels about herself and her identity and her strength and her power too. I call, I call her my uh, my little witch, and I mean that in the most positive way. My grandmother was a she had this weird pointed finger that went the wrong way that she broke in a in a bank door, and I used to call my grandmother a witch, and I mean it in the, in very much the, the the witch is being powerful 
intelligent, um, you know, amazing women. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so, so they're definitely two uh, witches who inspire me. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Jess Moriarty. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Craig Jordan Baker, music by Jack Devaney. Find out more about us and subscribe at www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com or you can just catch up with us through Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts is sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.